You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful good afternoon peace be upon you and welcome to another episode of the Draft Time show here on the Voice of Islam on a Friday afternoon today with myself Raza brother Kiyum and brother Daniel the three of us are in the studio joining you over the next 2 hours all the way up until 6 as always do give us a call if you want to have your say there's two very interesting topics that we have uh, in store for you today in the first half of the program we are going to speak about democracy is it the only way to achieve societal peace or not and in the second half also very interesting we're going to talk about messiahs can they be brought back to life or not now um first of all let me introduce the two gentlemen who you have dearly missed in the last couple of weeks uh, brother daniel assalamu alaikum to you and brother kiyum assalamu alaikum to you as well wa alaikum assalam really happy to be back peace be on you gentlemen how are you How has your week oh, been? Oh yeah, week's been amazing. How have your weeks been? It hasn't been weeks. <laughs> <laughs> just one it, week. It, it's his brother Daniel. It certainly looks took a sabbatical. as though. <laughs> 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 yes, as I said, great to be back. Great to be here today and great to be with uh, with you guys. Like can can I just throw in a a, oh, a, a, yeah. a quote from um to kick to kick our, uh, off our discussion mm-hmm. quote from none other than Winston Churchill to talk about the, the very topic that uh, we're about to talk about which is democracy and democracy in Islam so Winston Churchill uh, <clears throat> once said and this is uh, I'm quoting this from the International Churchill Society uh, International Churchill Society's website and it quotes uh, Winston Churchill saying democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time <sighs> he said it's the worst form yeah of those tried mm. of those tried he's not wrong is he absolutely i mean not. In, if yeah. if one was to you know people always look at things from a theoretical purposes academically and it sounds wonderful yet if we were to look historically around the world in practical terms let's let's talk about ourselves western democracies that's mm. the word we always use we always invade other countries in the name of liberty and and uh, safety and human rights and to restore democracy if we were to look at those nations we have invaded in the name of democracy mm-hmm. they are anything but democracies that those acts are anything but democracy yes so from a living example it would seem that churchill was correct and just before we came on air and i think i agree with you that real democracy has never really been i'm sure oh. that's what you said it's never really been put into practice Yeah, exactly. That's what we're talking about. Absolutely. I think uh, it's um I remember uh, the fourth caliph <laughs> of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has Mr. Zahir Ahmad may Allah have mercy on his soul. He he once said that uh, you know the 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 democratic system that that uh, currently exists in the West, practiced in the West is hardly democratic if you if you really think because you know when we say by the people for the people that hardly happens Abraham Lincoln isn't it yeah yeah but that that's what that's what you know that's that's uh, the democratic slogan mm. a, a slogan for democracy 
And uh, that really happens because he said that uh, when you look at actually the workings of the parliament, everybody is trying to take a party position. Hmm. Nobody tries to really think of the common man or um, or even what he thinks is right or wrong. It's always what the party wants. Hmm. And there are whips to ensure that, that you know, you follow a certain party position on on certain very important topics. Hmm. <clears throat> and that whip is exercised sometimes very, very, uh, uh, very severely as well. So, uh, yes. So, so when we say a system <clears throat> which is actually designed to, for the people, it is supposed to, um, supposed to act for the people, the question then um, also arises: Why is democracy failing so many, so many billions around the world? There are democratic systems in many countries where, for example, I can give you an example of India. For example, I only was only speaking to an Indian citizen over the weekend, and and they said that yes, India is shining, but that was his view that. India is shining only for the three, four hundred million people. Mm. What about the vast majority of the others, um, uh, billion odd people? India is not shining for those. They are still, if you look at, uh, and he gave this example as well, that if you go to Mumbai, you, um, um, uh, I forget the name of that, uh, uh, was it Dharvi or uh, I forget the name of the, the that biggest slum in the world. And uh, on the other side uh, of Mumbai, there is this this tower of a house owned by a billionaire. Mm. So you have these haves and have-nots, which is what a democratic system was supposed to get rid of. So we are discussing a system. So because we are discussing a system, it is automatically by default connected to how one governs. Should this discussion not be flipped? Okay. Shouldn't how one governs be more important and relevant than the system? Brother, I think you've hit the nail on its head. Absolutely. But nobody does that, do they? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody even thinks about that. You know, they, a, it's all about uh, big slogans these yeah. days. It's all about... Um, <clears throat> uh, wall-to-wall coverage of those big slogans. It's its never finding the meaning behind those slogans. Hmm. Brother Raza, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think this is, <laughs> you're absolutely right. And this is this is where, where you know, the part that we want to focus on comes in, right? So you, as Winston Churchill, you know, the quote that you've mentioned, that these things have been tried, but what hasn't been tried is, um, just you, we focused only on the on the worldly solutions, right? So, you have philosophers and thinkers, but you never think about going towards faith, going towards religion, going towards divine to get some guidance on how to govern, right? So this is the reason why I wanted we wanted to focus a little bit more about Islam and political authority. We wanted to look at the history of Islam, leadership. What guidance does faith give to, to leadership? I mean, look, when we look at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he he showed it with his example. He he showed how you can be both, right? It's not like he aspired to be a political figure. No, that was put into his lap. That was the situation that he was in, the, the time, the need of the time at the moment, uh, of, the, of the time. 
And he showed it by his example how you can do both. How can how you can be a ruler, a just ruler, a ruler who takes care of of his of of the citizens of the country, regardless of what faith, regardless of what background, regardless of where, what race or 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 uh, ethnical background they're from, um, which, as we know, is lacking in today's society. But I think it's important to clarify, for the benefit of the listener, is religion and politics are are like the two tracks of a train they run together but they never should meet mm. Mm. the state and the faith and and matters of faith are dealt with they're not in how do, faith, how does faith, put it? they're, they're your, separate faith in your personal capacity yeah yeah not uh, mm. i think um I, I'm reminded of this quote from uh, the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, and he was a great statesman, uh, very undervalued by much of the world, um, uh, in my opinion. He, um, at um, at the first address that he gave to the Constituent Assembly of Pakistan, when which was tasked to make the constitution of the country, he said that um, the that. Uh, uh, that the constitution that the constitution should be designed in a manner that muslims will cease to be muslims hindus will cease to be hindus not in the religious sense but in the political sense mm-hmm. so what that actually means is that you know when when it when it comes to the polity of the country and i think i would go so far as to say that islam's polity is secular. Hmm. Islam's political um, worldview is secular in that you have faith, and uh, and my faith is very dear to me. Your faith is very dear to you, and and uh, you know my neighbor who's a Christian, uh, another neighbor uh, uh, who's who's a Sikh. They they all have their faiths which are very dear to them. That has nothing to do with the business of the state. Hmm. Agreed. When it comes to the business of the state, when it comes to running the country, it's the best man for the job. And that is the Islamic perspective. That is the Islamic perspective. And going back to the point you were making, Brother Raza, when you mentioned the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he wasn't chosen a leader because he was a prophet. No. His, his and, and the reason it's important to separate these two things is he was chosen by the people. Yes. Because of his character, of who he was, because of his attributes, and that's exactly what we just said—that yeah. you choose the best man for the job, and and at that time, literally, you—and it wasn't just the Muslims who chose. No, him. it wasn't because the when he so his political career, if mm-hmm. you can say so, started when he migrated to Medina. Medina, right? So now Medina, if you look at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, before you had so many fractions, you had so many groups within the city of Medina who were not able to get along. So whoever was 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 the ruler of Medina, whoever was in charge at that time, of course they would look after their own people, they would look after their own group. But here comes a man who was known as the truthful, who was known as the trustworthy, who stood up for the rights of others, who stood up for the rights of those who did not, or you know, who, who was the voice of those who didn't have a voice at all. So who could be better 
to unite the parties that were in Medina at that time to unite the different you know people of Medina and then lead them into you know a new future and that's exactly what happened in the lifetime of the Holy Prophet the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him that he was there you then and uh, I mean the, his holiness was is talking about that in his Friday sermons these days um, that he's delivering on 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 the character and the life of the Holy Prophet how he managed to raise that nation from 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 nothing i mean we are talking about um a nation that was dreaming and was thinking about and was was planning on taking over the world sitting under a roof that was leaking they didn't have anything whatsoever right and then you look a couple of years you know, two three decades later in the lifetime of of, of the rightly guided caliphs how the Muslim empire spread. And again, it wasn't through the sword. It wasn't through, you know, vast expansion just on based on warfare. No, it wasn't. It was the system that they brought to other nations. It was the belief that they brought to the to, to other nations of equality, of justice, of fairness, of, you know, I will pick you because you're the best man for the job, not because you belong to my faith or you belong to my religion. Now, Brother Daniel, you mentioned secularism. Yeah, but the closest country one thinks of when we talk of who, who always talk of secularism is France, who always go on about being a secular society and yeah. when they make when they ban this and ban that. But if one was to look at in practical terms mm. how France is doing at the moment, it's anything but secular. Yeah, his Holiness actually spoke about that only today in his uh, yeah. in his sermon. And how beautifully did did he put it? You know, we talk about. I mean, it's it's at the end of the day, it's about people's attitude. We, you know, democracy is a system of the people, and uh, the example of France, where you know riots are happening, and apparently these calls have been made for for donations of yeah. this kid who was um, two hundred fifty thousand was killed, yeah. as well as the policeman who killed. Who got and a million? <laughs> who has exactly a million francs have been raised? A million euro has yeah. been have been raised for him, whereas only two hundred thousand have been raised for this kid. Yeah. Now all those people giving donating that money, I mean that it, that just shows it's the mindset. That it's a mindset that it you know it's a total lack of justice in the society, total lack of sense of justice in the society. But is it the system that these people are following, or is it the mindset of the people? Surely people can't be wrong because people are just following what system they are being told to follow. I, I and the narrative of the government of the governors. Mm. And and in today's day mm. and age, part and parcel of the equation of governance, social media seems to be a one hell of a lot more powerful than the politician. Yeah, um, I. I, I I can I mean can you see where I'm coming from? Yeah. Because to me I think well okay they've raised a million for this chap who says he was scared because he thinks he was uh, going to be shot at. They've been led in a certain direction. And that's my point that would it not be unjust for us to say well these people are bad. Yeah. And the reason I say, I'm I'm mentioning this because this has a direct reflection on the way the system of governance is if if um 
I, I, I think you're letting uh, go of important poetry. I think this is also a reflection on many people, not it's, the whole French nation, many people living in France as well. It is. And and their attitudes. But I take your point that, yes, it's, it's also about uh, how people are being led and, and, and which direction leaders, especially the far-right leaders of the world, are taking their populist towards. Oh, I, I wholeheartedly, I was having this discussion yesterday with, with, a, uh, with an Italian friend who was talking about um, uh, Maloney, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the prime minister of, uh, of uh, recently she gave uh, a speech. And everybody calls her far right. Yeah. What if one was to sit and listen to some of the things she says, I would say she's centre right, or she's become centre right mm. in order to um, uh, go forward with her political uh, coalition that she has in Italy. And she was talking about how she wants to protect her way of life, which is in accordance with her belief, which is Christianity. Mm. And the social media was tearing her apart in a sense where calling her old, backwards, you know, all the the cancel culture. They're like, mm. she's, uh, you know, old school. She all doesn't matter to her anymore, yeah. um, you know. Um, and, and she was sticking to her guns of um, she lives her life. Whether she does or not is between her and her God. But from from what she was saying... It kind of resonated with a lot of people of faith. Yeah. And this is what kind of brings me to the point you made that if one was to look at let's let's start from home. Mm. Mm. Um we talk of democracy, yes. Yes, but the government is and, and the opposition is uh, actively seeking to to ban BDS um, from to 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 uh, you know when they talk of uh, um, taking economic action against uh, countries like Israel, yeah, they're they're trying to ban local authorities to um, who support such um, narratives and such policies. Isn't that against democracy? To, to actively vote for something to ban. Isn't banning anything against democracy? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one. I, uh, wouldn't banning an illegal activity, uh, some, banning something that's against the law, within the law? <laughs> it's illegal to be anti-Semitic. Yeah. But it's not illegal to be Islamophobic. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that and, and again, I'm not making the comparable. Yeah. I am saying, isn't that narrative non-democratic? Yeah. So, so, so you are then talking about uh, basically all the um, uh, the unfortunate um, unfortunate things that exist in the in the Western society, in the whole world in general, yeah. where there are contradictions. Um, so, H Hillary Clinton got more votes per person. When she ran. Yeah, and, and yet she lost. Yet she lost. Yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, mm. <clears throat> per person, mm. got more votes. Yeah, and yet he was booted out. Yet he was booted out. So where's democracy? Mm. What's the definition of democracy? So 20% vote 
one party, 20% other, and then the rest of the 60% is broken into small factions. Yeah. Those 60% get get uh, ignored because it's first past the post. Yeah. So true democracy can only ever come, or true, true democracy, the closest you can get to a true democracy would be coalitions. Hmm. Proportional representation. Yeah, which, which, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you're talking about the German system. I, a German no, because brother it, over here, uh, because it works. Is uh, brother Rosa? It yeah, works. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen. Um, one aim of democracy is, and and this is something we briefly elaborated upon this when when we started off the show. You know, the, the, to ensure the peace between the rulers and and the ruled. So it's quite important that both follow their responsibilities that have been put on their shoulders. In the Holy Quran, we find clearly, I mean, this verse has been mentioned here on the on Dry Farm many, many times, that you, we need to hand over the trust to those who are most entitled to it, right? So in the Holy Quran, it says that, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the cause of Allah, bearing witness and equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. Be always just, that is nearer to righteousness. And also says... Um, that, O ye who believe, obey Allah and obey his messenger and those who are in authority among you. And if you differ in anything among yourselves, refer to Allah and his messenger if you are believers. So we find this many, many times in the Holy Quran uh, to, to make sure that the reason why a religion comes, the reason behind why a faith is introduced to society is the lack of peace is the lack of justice is the lack of um giving the rights due and owed to you know the people amongst each other and that's where we need to look at faith we need to look at religion and that's i think the the reason why we we looked at this program we we started this show that we you know we take these things for granted that rules have a responsible rulers have a responsibility to us the citizens but not many of us think about the, the 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 responsibilities that we actually have towards the country, towards the nation, and even you know towards the ruler. Um, we spoke to earlier on. I think before we continue with this, yeah, go ahead. Uh, before we get on to this, just one um, uh, question that we are asking on the Instagram story, right. mm-hmm. and whoever wrote the question has started the weekend already. Is democracy the best form if government? I think they mean off government. <laughs> Hence why the weekend has started. Um, while we listen to the interview, um, please do go on to the Instagram story and give us your opinion on at Voice of Islam UK. Now, we spoke to Sean McCandles. Uh, McCand- sorry, McCandless, uh, sorry, sorry, brother. Before you go there, I think I, I, there's a very important point to support uh, what our brother uh, Kayum was uh, saying earlier on. So uh, I just want to quickly quote from... Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, which is a book written by the fourth head mm. of the MDM community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul. And he writes in, uh, in chapter 5 on page 429, he says, as far as national politics is concerned, the foremost issue is which political system is good or bad for man. Again, we need to discover whether it is the failure of political systems and their inherent defects which are responsible for the miseries and dissatisfaction of a people, or is it something else? Is the system to be blamed or those who run it? Hmm. Can immoral, selfish, greedy, or corrupt political leadership, which rises to power by democratic means, be really good and beneficial for society as against benign dictatorship, for instance? 
In order to establish and guarantee international peace, Islam is a word of advice for the contemporary politicians. Islam lays extraordinary stress on introducing absolute morality to all spheres of human activity, politics being no exception, unquote. And isn't that that's something is missing today? Some people might say. Now, that, that quote summed up today's show. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank um, you for listening, I was going to say. <laughs> we'll, we'll be back. <laughs> no, we, are, we will be back, but uh, before that, we're going to play. So we spoke to um, Professor Sean McCandless, who works as an assistant professor of public administration at the University of Illinois. He's going to go on to start um, as an associate professor of public and nonprofit management at the University of Texas at Dallas. Um, but we spoke to him about this topic, and this is what Professor Sean McCandless had to say. Um, so obviously we're talking about democracy today, uh, and I would just really like to ask you quite Simply or perhaps not simply, how would you define democracy in the 21st century? Um, and are there kind of any key characteristics that have differentiated it from earlier forms of democracy that we've seen in the past? I mean, these are these are excellent questions, and I think they get to so many fundamental issues that we face in the 21st century. And I have quite a few thoughts on that, if that's okay. But I think at its core, democracy has to, when we define it, it has to involve a widely enfranchised people being able to deliberate and decide on what they want their governments to do and really indeed what they want their societies to do. And to me, white enfranchisement at a minimum means that people have the right to vote, but then much more extendedly are given full rights as a citizen. And in a modern sense, you know, in the 21st century sense, what we really mean by democracy is representative democracies in which the widely enfranchised people vote on who their governing officials will be. And then these governing officials in turn will interact uh, enact particular ideas as policy. And throughout history, we see some examples of direct democracy in which a relatively small number of people basically vote on everything held in common. But for what I study, we're really talking about representative democracy. And I see two big differences in 21st century democracies versus uh, those that we can see throughout history. And there are other differences, of course, but I think that these two are really important. I mean, first, who is legally enfranchised is much broader that's true, but then these democracies are still going to have issues with ensuring that governments promote equity and justice for all. And the second one is that the problems democracies face are so much more problematic and broad than those faced in the past. And it's okay, I'd like to go into both of those right now. Uh, I think first, 21st century democracy is much more expansive in terms of who is legally enfranchised than those earlier forms. But the big issue is, does this legal enfranchisement actually extend to day-to-day reality because that term widely enfranchisement is so important because it has expanded. I think of both the United Kingdom and the United States. Both countries, to a degree, have shown expanding notions of who is enfranchised, at least in the legal sense. Both countries have what might be called early democratic elements that very often involve the way the elite had some rights to vote to change government policy in some sort of way. I remember watching a video, actually, when I was uh, uh, teaching political science, and I, I had to do a comparative section. I would talk about the, uh, the UK government. I remember a video from the UK government where it's talking about the growing power in the commons and these proto-democratic elements. In the United States, we see this in terms of at the uh, beginning of US history, where it was really only white male property owners who could vote, and no one else could. 
And this notion has expanded massively over time. But democracy is much more than that because when we talk about widely enfranchised, because who is considered among the people in a society can vary widely. And that's why it's an essential feature of democracies is that they have particular protections of the rights of its citizens and also non-citizens, things like related to property, assembly, speech, and religion. But these protections also have to extend to protections concerning people's identities. In fact, one of the things I study in public administration is social equity, which in the most basic definition means the study of fairness or the lack thereof by what governments do. And unfortunately, while these legal definitions of enfranchisement have expanded over time in both the UK and the US and many other countries, what happens in reality can be very different. People can and do experience bias, prejudice, and discrimination concerning their identity or identities. And none of us have a single identity. That's why the US scholar Kimberly Crenshaw calls this intersectionality, the notion that multiple identities and statuses combine. And yeah. people often experience this discrimination despite many legal protections against it. And many of these experiences of discrimination come in interactions with government institutions. That's, that's one big thing. I, and I, I, know, I know it's a lot of information, but I think that is so essential to distinguish that. Is yes, we have wider enfranchisement, but then we still face issues of bias, prejudice, and discrimination that's rooted in much narrower definitions of enfranchisement in the past. And, and this other difference, and this, this is a huge one, and I see it come again and again, is that the democracy of the 21st century versus governments of the past, the issues that we face are so much larger. And we continually have to ask ourselves this question, what should be the power of government to determine what we do about these complex problems? How much power do we want the government to have to address these issues? And even are there issues governments should stay out of entirely mm -hmm. or partner with other groups yeah. in order to address. And think about climate change. Climate change is so fundamental to that. And I, to me, the science is very clear that global climate change is occurring and human activity is a big driver of that change. How do we want government to be able to legislate on, on this, especially as it affects our everyday lives? But people are going to disagree not only about how to address climate change, but also whether it exists or other human activities involved. How do we change our everyday behaviors, like the cars we drive, or the pollution from factories, or even the type of foods that we eat? Or, And it extends to even other fundamental things like privacy. Now, in the United States, privacy is considered a right, although it's never explicitly mentioned in our Constitution. It's interpreted to be there. Mm -hmm. But over time, there's been this recognition that the right to privacy is not supreme, and that there's instances which government can limit privacy to agree to a degree, especially when there's the safety of oneself or others are implicated. And just think about it. When you walk down the street, how many cameras do you see? When you use any piece of technology, how are you being tracked? When you go to the airport, how extensive can searches be? And these are two big issues because we always have to ask ourselves these big questions about how have these issues expanded in ways that we're not even sure how to define them, much less do things about them. And those are two big issues that, that democracies in the past have not faced to the extent that we have now. Yeah, I suppose it kind of spiraled out into something that it happened faster than we could kind of theorize and yeah. think about in like legal and political terms. And I was, well, I suppose this kind of does lead me on and you've kind of already covered my, my next question, which was going to be what are the major challenges that democracy faces? Yes. Um, and I'd just like to add on to that because you mentioned that the, this wider representation and representation of larger groups of people, etc., 
and with the intersectionality, do you think we'll, we'll ever get to a point where everybody can be truly represented for all of the different facets of their identity? Or will there be this moment where you just kind of have to say, look, we're trying, but this is about as far as we can go before we're thinking about every individual as just an individual rather than a part of mm. a collective? that makes sense those those are those are wonderful questions and and i think yes we can get there um sometimes it may actually mean that we do less with government versus more at times but this idea of challenges that democracy face in the 21st century and i mean that's that's such a fantastic question because in public administration and public policy studies there's a term called wicked problem that's Mm -hmm. used a lot um, you know, the, this idea that something that is quite difficult to tackle, and it's difficult to tackle because these problems are volatile, they're uncertain, they're complex, they're ambiguous, and can constantly change in parts. And it's hard even to define the problem, much less solve it. And that's a big thing. Democracies in the 21st century very often face the same types of problems as ones in the past, or even just governments in the past, whether they were democracies or not. But these problems end up being far more wicked problems. Mm-hmm. And to me, I mean, just think about this. is like how we respond to massively complex problems that span borders, but do so in a way that protects the integrity and rights of people involved, especially those who are the most vulnerable, especially those who may not have the mechanisms of the state to protect them, to protect their lives, to protect their freedoms and liberties and the integrity and value of their lives. In fact, to me, that is a key piece in understanding how challenges differ from those in the past. Because throughout history, countries have faced problems that extend far beyond their legally recognized borders. And frankly, with colonialism, imperialism, and changes in societies really beginning from the Industrial Revolution, the ability of something happening in one area to affect another area of the world has only expanded. And mm-hmm. and I, I, I continually go back to this idea of, of pollution. I mean, pollution is what in economics is called a negative externality. I mean, it's produced by one group of people, but it results in costs to others as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of these things that where pollution goes far beyond one's country and is global. And the U.S. is a massive polluter. And it's not the only one. Yet addressing pollution at a global scale is going to require many changes on the local scale. And that implicates democracy in a very intense way. What do we want democracy, especially local democracies, to do to respond to solution to pollution and the climate crisis? And we have very intense debates about that. In fact, I know in the United States, there are many examples, local examples, of democracy, of people asserting that a global concern should not impact local decision-making, such as using a car or a particular yeah. resource, of, but also refugee crises. Mm-hmm. That, that's another example. Whether governments are biased, prejudiced, and discriminatory against particular groups and are not being courted the rights and privileges they both deserve and earn. And unfortunately, many governments have intended to benefit some groups more than others, often on the basis of bias, prejudice, and discrimination. And they try to make that bias and prejudice and discrimination legal. Yet, mm-hmm. yes, there have been legal written improvements in terms of whose rights are protected and the extent to which they're protected, but that's a big challenge. We need to make sure those protections are not just words on a page, but enacted throughout government, especially at the street level with any person in the government with whom you interact. So it's just more extensive these concerns are, it's the greater the likelihood that we as individuals and groups are going to have to change our behavior in some way. And we can't always trust that people or even companies will change behavior willingly or they're on the court. So we have to have some sort of legal enforcement mechanism there, which is really government. And I'll just say this very briefly, I'm very encouraged about this possibility of being able to protect everyone's rights in, in a legal way 
sense. It just means that we change the way that government operates and we change the everyday procedures of what government does. And that is possible. And we are seeing some examples, especially at local levels, of where that occurs, especially to promote things like, like racial equity. Mm-hmm. Like this is something that's discussed a lot more in the United States, especially places like, like Seattle and King County and Washington State. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged. I'm very hopeful. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like there's definitely kind of like just cause to be so optimistic about it. Like it's not a blinded sort of optimism, which is great. And I think, um, I think we kind of do need a bit more of that because it's so easy to get pessimistic about uh, politics. It is, though. It is. It is. And I think when we get pessimistic, then we, we run the risk of shutting ourselves off. And, mm-hmm. and I think when we shut ourselves off and thinking we can't affect change, then that becomes a major issue, including if we don't act from a place of compassion for others to promote the, the lessening of suffering and, and policies to benefit people, that becomes less likely when we, we become pessimistic. All right, that was uh, the first half of the interview that we've had with the with Professor Sean McCandless from the University of Illinois. There's one more part that we would like to play in. But before you play, yeah, um, gentlemen, question that does come to mind. What's the alternative? To, we are discussing a democracy. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about a, a system. And because I was thinking while I was listening to the interview mm. and, and while we were having a discussion that in recent times, the, the, the person that comes closest in my mind is, and, and a lot of people would disagree with me, but it's a personal opinion, is Colonel Gaddafi. Mm. He ran Libya for 41 years on a tribal system. Now, I don't agree with mo- a lot of his policies. Yeah, he was in certain ways an he extremist at certain well. points. Yeah, however, he was able edu- to maintain free peace. education system, and he was able to maintain peace. Yes, which, for forty-one which is years, absent from from Libya yeah. of today, uh, the, the people of Libya, they, they still they remember him because free education, ninety-seven percent graduate rate, education was free, health was free, housing. Um, the public had a share in the oil of Libya. They, like it was spent, he he had dedicated it to for 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 uh, uh, f- to make the life of mm, Libyans well-being easy. Of people, yeah. If there was no medical treatment for a Libyan in Libya, the government would pay for that individual to be treated outside of the country. It was a government yeah. expense. So, if one was to look at governance, mm. i.e., the the welfare of the people. Yeah. It worked. Yes, and and there are other countries where you you will find similar setups. I believe in the Middle East there's, there's many of the, not many but there's a few countries that I can think at the top of my head where everything that you described was the same. Yeah. Having said that, I think I'm I'm thinking back of um something that the second caliph of the Ummah Muslim community has Mahmoud Ahmed he wrote in, in one of his books. You see, this question is probably something that you cannot pinpoint, right? What he said was that Islam is not in favor of this or that. So whatever works for you. And look, in certain countries, in certain times, um, communism worked, right? Um, But there's no way that you could apply this here. No. Yeah. But in in certain countries, well, we've just you know when we started off the show, where democracy was 
taken to certain countries to liberate them from the dictatorship. Is it working there? It's not. Yeah. Right. So there's no one size fits all solution here. What I mean, whatever works <coughs> for that country, for that nation. We had the example of COVID. You know the 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 measures that China took. Yeah. There is no way that we would have survived those. Yeah. Or people would have put up with that. Mm-hmm. They would not. Because simply put, the, the the system that has been placed here, the the upbringing of the people, and, and so many different factors, you simply could not apply the same rules here in this country or in the West. But in right. China, it worked. So, so this... Uh, uh, this brings me to what I actually wanted to end the show with, but since you guys, you brothers have, have asked the question, Kareem said you asked the question, and and Brother Raza has um, has already alluded to uh, to what I was about to say. So uh, let me go back and quote uh, from the book Islam's mm. Response to Contemporary Issues, again written by the fourth head of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on his soul. And he writes, and I quote, There is no doubt the Holy Quran speaks of a democratic system where the rulers can be elected by the people, hmm. but it is not the only system recommended by Islam. Nor can it be the fundamental prerogative of a universal religion to choose a single system of government without due regard to the fact that it is not practically possible for a single system to be applicable to all re- to all regions and societies of the world. Democracy has not developed enough, even in the most advanced nations of the world, to reach the stage of polity, which is the ultimate political vision of democracy. With the rise of capitalism and the building of extremely powerful machinery in capitalist countries, truly democratic elections cannot be held anywhere. Add to this the growing problem of corruption and the coming into being of the mafia and other pressure groups. One can safely conclude that democracy is not in safe hands even in the most democratic countries of the world, then how can it be suitable in the third world? So, to say that Western democracy can prevail in African, Asian, or South American countries, or the so-called Islamic countries of the world, would be tantamount to making a hollow and unrealistic claim. And you know, before we go to recordings, just to pick up on that point with His Holiness, the fourth caliph of the Amli Muslim community, and may Allah have mercy on it. So when he talked of capitalism and we talk, and he talked of uh, the powerful machinery, when and, and even in today's world, when we talk about such systems, there is an absence of morality, there's an absence of value, there is an absence of ethics. Yeah. So which should be the bedrock exactly. of any political system? Exactly. So, you know, bef- and 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 just to conclude, uh, because he makes the same point again, going back to Islam's con- uh, response to contemporary issues, he writes, "What Islam emphasizes is not the form of government, but how the government should discharge itself. Yes, provided a system of rule confirms conforms to the Islamic I- ideal in the discharge of the trust owed to the subjects, different systems of the government." government, such as monarchy, democracy, etc., can be accommodated under Islam. So it's it's about how do you discharge your responsibilities, how benevolent you are, uh, whether the uh, system of government is actually built on, um, uh, built on 
the principles of justice and fair play. That's I, I think that, that that's the, the word key. I was about to use. Yeah. That if one was to look at all the addresses that His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the fifth Caliph and the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah strengthen his hand. His that one word that he has used everywhere, simply because it's missing, yeah. in in international politics, yeah, everywhere these days, there's absolutely. a lack of justice <coughs> yeah. and equity. Yeah, that, even in national politics, even in national yeah. politics, that everywhere. There is, uh, people are suffering because pe- people are being treated unjustly. Yeah, people have been treated un- unjustly. I mean, why else do you think we still have a debate in 2023 about leveling up in the north and and south taking a bulk of the share of the country's wealth? This is the sixth largest economy in the world, and we still have that debate in 2023. This is the oldest functioning democracy in the world as well, and yet we still talk about that because people in the north feel deprived. And I think this notion of democracy in the West is leading to the West developed nations. Because yeah. if look around you, the West is imploding. It's not exploding. Yeah, is imploding. Yes, Which, I mean, yeah. Look around us. Societies are societies are uh, are at loggerheads yeah. on the most ridiculous issues which you know is another program we will go into late you know yeah. maybe some other uh, time of the year but we are imploding because we think everything is oh democratically we decided this democratically we decided that cherry picking what suits the narrative mm. of the people who are governing yeah absolutely now having said that let's go to the second part of the interview that we've had with the professor um professor Sean McCandless from the University of Illinois. We're going to have to cut this short a little bit because, as always, Brother Kiyum went a lot over his time. But anyways, that's fine. No worries. Brother, uh, it was Brother Kiyum's fault. Brother who's, who's, who's at the helm? Who's at uh, the controls? You know, it's... it's you know, I can't press a button uh, unless you, you don't... Uh, oh, hold, hold on. You have the button. It's rude. And it's my fault. <laughs> you know, come on. Enjoy that interview. Bad craftsman always blames This is Professor Sean McCandless. <laughs> Well, I mean, I just to kind of go off and kind of uh, like I, I think that the climate change example that you give is such a pertinent example because it, it, it really is a lot of kind of like these quote unquote developed uh, nations, which are uh, huge polluters. Uh, and, and as we are now beginning to see with some kind of natural disasters and uh, extremities of, uh, of climate, um, which are majorly impacting as well as these kind of developed areas as well with the hurricanes yeah. and the wildfires. But also a lot of them are happening in, quote unquote, the developing world um, or, or in the global yeah. south. Um, yes. So just kind of going off that, like, how do you then see the relationship between democracy and international institutions in the face of this globalized world? Like both in terms of the impact of what we're doing is quite literally impacting everyone around the world, but also in terms of like social media and technology about how what happens in one place will directly and almost instantaneously impact the mode of thinking or action in somewhere like thousands of miles away that that those, those are those are fantastic points and um if it's okay i'd like to address the the social media part first because yeah, i think yeah, that question is so important because governments of any type they thrive on information like data mm-hmm. signals signs communications knowledge and so forth governments of any type need this information to be able to do their work and um democracies also need information and democracies depend upon Education, because education is really how um, knowledge and information 
um, are transmitted, not mm-hmm. only within formal structures of education, but also um, informally as well. And technology has made it much easier for people to get information and also produce information, uh, such as an example of, of your organization is doing a great job with this. And that's a major benefit of technology uh, to democracy is that it can level informational barriers, at least when people can access and use the technology. I mean, access is a big issue. Mm-hmm. But also, governments across the world use social media information to get out information. In fact, where I live in the United States, we live in Tornado Alley. Social mm-hmm. media is an essential tool for communicating that tornado conditions um, yeah. are, are possible. That the tornado on the ground. It's wonderful. And it's good for government. And it's also ease government. I mean, when I can literally never step into a government office, I can use internet technologies to, for instance, renew my driver's license or, or pay my utility bill. I mean, it's amazing. But then there's also that downside uh, of technology is um, where it's so easy to put out hateful, untrue information. And I've seen this in a lot of countries I've studied. You know, conspiracy theories can spread like wildfire on the Internet. And there's that debate about, you know, how much can government uh, regulate that? And, and, you know, quite frankly, if if this information is is leading to the possibility of violence, then then there is a public interest in having that 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 regulated. So I think that technology changes, which spans borders, uh, are really quite enormous. There's good things and there's bad things about that. And that's so interesting, your question about international institutions, because technology and international institutions go hand in hand. And we can see this across history in which international institutions are challenging, and sometimes I think in a, in a, in a, in a very productive way and sometimes in not so productive ways of what democracy means. And, you know, you open a history textbook and you can say, oh, the modern state system came about in 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. And yeah, that's technically true, but there, <laughs> the centrality of states and governments throughout it has been throughout history. But throughout history, we also see these players and actors who've been somewhat connected to the state or even employed by the state or even don't have state support that become major actors. And, and I think in the context of the UK, I mean, like there's, there's, there's the East India Trading Company, for instance. Yeah. There's also examples of pirates being hired mm-hmm. to hunt down other pirates. Uh, but then, and then in the 19th century, we, we see examples of like the rise of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent. But it was really in the 20th century that I think we began to see truly international institutions, and there's so many types. And I see a lot of benefits to these types of international institutions. And But since we deal with wicked problems, there are also problems for democracies. And I think to me, a core question that democracies have to ask and answer is how much international organizations will impact what happens locally. Yeah, Because international organizations like business, yeah, they can foster more trade and resources. But if they do so to the detriment of countries where they're obtaining those resources from, then that's a major problem. Because people are going to be harmed, the many are going to be harmed so the few can benefit. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, we see how harm disproportionately is experienced by developing countries, whereas the benefits are disproportionately enjoyed by the richest countries. And you, you brought up you know, the global north versus the global south. And that's, that is something that, that international organizations, the implications for local democracy are very real. They literally become matters of life and death. And so since these business organizations, which is one type of international organization, span countries, we have to establish truly global accountability measures, which we have to a degree. But then there's also these international organizations. We can consider things like the United Nations or the European Union, which require treaties 
and I know that the listeners are probably going to be very intimately familiar with this, is that the questions democracies face is how much local control or discretion are we willing to give up to have more uniformity at the international level, especially in terms of safety and other standards like that and travel. And in the United States, we see this also in terms of the Paris Climate Accords or the International Criminal Court for the Investigation of War Crimes. Yeah, the kingdom, of course, Brexit. And I I remember actually in the past few years in the United States, I hear chants every now and then from from certain groups where they say they don't want, for instance, the United Nations interfering with U.S. foreign and military policy. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of kind of suspicion about these kind of like yes. quote unquote, foreign powers. Um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and and I I, I love the, that term that you use, suspicion, because, you know, suspicion can can lead to, well, I'm, I'm just not certain about something. I'm, I'm hesitant about something. And we can see how it's a mixed bag because on one hand, there are certain types of international institutions and certain types of arrangements that are quite positive, but we have to figure out how do we make them accountable for when they mess up, because they do mess up, and they do mess up a lot, and when they do mess up, it implicates matters of life and death. Let's just be serious about that, right? Right. Um, after listening to, to that clip, we want to end this particular segment by again going back to uh, this uh, this exemplary, this exceptional book, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, again written by the fourth head of the Amdiya Muslim community, Hazrat Mr. May Allah have mercy on his soul. He writes in the book, According to the Holy Quran, people have a free choice to adopt any system of rule which suits them. However, it seems that democracy is preferred and highly commended in the Quran. The Muslims are advised to have a democratic system, though not exactly on the pattern of Western-style democracy. Islam does not present a hollow definition of democracy anywhere in the Holy Quran. It only deals with principles of vital significance and leaves the rest to the people follow, to follow and benefit or stray and be destroyed. And I think with these words, we will conclude this segment um, the five o'clock news is this, next. This this book that Brother Daniel is talking about, Islam's response to contemporary issues. If you were to go to www.alislam.org, you can download it from uh, from I think the library section as a PDF. Yeah, it's, it's just for free. I, I urge everyone do please go and read this book. Um, and and it, it's an eye opener. It'll make you wiser. Yeah. You're listening to the Draft Time Show here on the Voice of Islam today with myself, Reza Brother Kiyum, and Brother Daniel. We're going to go to the five o'clock news, and then we'll be back after that. Stay with us. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to The Draft. I'm sure here on The Voice of Islam. In a review of the history of religions, one finds scores of instances where founders of religions or other divines are reported to have bodily ascended to heaven. Now, these claims are so numerous and widespread that it seems to be a universal trend of man to conceive such stories in order to elevate, in order to hype up their religious leaders. And even if we accept all such claims of religious leaders having ascended to heaven throughout human history, there is not a single example of bodily return of any person to this world. Absent of literal fulfillment of such claims, one is left with two choices. Either you reject such claims as untrue or only metaphorically accept them as in the case of Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, who did in the case of Elijah's second coming. Now regarding the second coming of Christ, regarding the second coming of Krishna, regarding the second coming of any prophet of any religious leader, but in specifically the case of Prophet Jesus. Many Muslims believe he would come with such glory and clear signs descending from heaven in broad daylight with angels supporting him that it would be impossible for even skeptics to refuse to accept him. 
But history tells us that all such divines and beings come with humility as opposed to grandeur. They are always treated with callousness, prejudice, fanaticist hostility, and not welcomed with open arms. And isn't that something that we have witnessed as well? You know, you've kind of done a, a beautiful synopsis there of what we're going to be talking about for the next hour. Before we break it down uh, in, and go into detail, it's important to highlight the point that nearly, what, 8 billion people in this world now, nearly near enough? Mm. And I'm sure somebody will call and correct me. I would say 6 billion of those probably, or more, mm. belong to a faith. Yeah, more. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely yeah. more. And as Brother Raza said, every single faith, irrespective of what the belief is, have one thing in common. They're waiting for someone we can we let's for the for the sake of argument some reformer to come yes we can say the messiah reformer messenger whatever you want to call it that is one thing that's common because we have understood and recognized that the world that we are living in is in trouble if one was to um, look through it from a from a lens of truth justice if one was to look through the lens of the realities of life. The world is in trouble. And I think COVID was um, one um, extraordinary event which highlighted this even more in respect of um, as, a, as a disease, as a virus, um, which showed the world that even the most powerful person in the world is not powerful, doesn't have the ultimate power. Nobody can save. No money, no power, no influence. No human being um, can save the, 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 the mighty and the powerful. And this disease did not discriminate between the, the you know the, the one the from the Richard, from the bottom of the yeah. scale so someone to the top of the scale if you want to put it in mm. matter of speaking yeah. so everyone has been waiting for a messenger to come and save the world a lot of people have given up i remember a few years ago yeah. um you know a, a lot of people from different faiths had declared uh, or or segments of different faiths mm. Um, had declared that, you know, it's been so many, it's been thousands of years. We're not talking hundreds, we're talking thousands of years. Yeah. And we don't think um, this this Savior is going to come because now God has even given up on humans. Um, and the ultimate uh, punishment, if one was to call it, is that God has stopped loving us. Hmm. And you're right. There have been you know exact dates as well yes. i remember that we learned actually about this in uh, during during our uh, course for the missionary in, during the missionary college course and there were different dates set and i think the last one even the vatican they put out a statement uh, i was trying to find it but i'm sure somebody will send it to me where that notion was simply put you know, it was was put on hold. So the the you know they didn't give any date, and went even so so far to say that maybe he's not coming after all, hmm. right? So I mean, Pope Innocent. So yeah, I got, I got a few here. Pope Innocent the Third predicted Christ's return and Doomsday in eight twelve eighty four. 
William Miller made his call in October 1844. Alexander Dowie launched his campaign at the turn of the 20th century. Edgar Wisnant added his pitch for September 1988. Some threw Nostradamus and Sir Isaac Newton in there as well. And then there's the Harold Camping, um, a quasi-theologian uh, Christian who swears beyond a doubt that May 21st, 2011 um, was going to be Christ's return and doomsday. And then, of course, there's others as well. But as we can see, we're in the year 2023. Um, Brother Daniel, you, I know you've, we, when we did the show on, um, I think it was World War Three. You, you mentioned the doomsday clock. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people... Like Brother Raza said, a lot of people have uh, predicted the end of the world yeah. to the doomsday clock as well, isn't it? Not just the World War Three, but from a belief system, the doomsday clock, I think. Doomsday clock is a very secular uh, and a very academic uh, clock. I mean, it sounds uh, it sounds um, very unacademic, but actually it's, it's something which is uh, set up by a bunch of very highly acclaimed uh, and recognized scientists and academics, uh, uh, f- founders of the Manhattan Project, which actually mm-hmm. built the first nuclear bomb, was uh, Einstein was one of the members of uh, the Doomsday uh, Clock as well. So, so yeah, so this uh, it, it sounds a bit dramatic, but it's uh, it's actually backed by a lot of science and a lot of data, and uh, they have this um, um, uh, this clock, which which is supposed to show how close the world is to Doomsday. Now, the reason I mentioned Doomsday. Because one other interesting fact a lot of people might not know, and I'm sure our listener um, who might not agree with me is welcome to give us a call, 0208-687-7878. That's 0208-687-7878. Or you can join us via our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK. The point I was going to make is that whenever this messenger is going to come, there's going to be certain signs. All faiths, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, other um, so other religions as well. Mm-hmm. They all, they, they, their scriptures or the, in their teachings, there is mention of tsunamis. Yeah. There is mentions of volcanoes erupting. Earthquakes. Earthquakes. Um, wars, unjust societies, um, injustice of the poor, Mm. divisions in societies, Mm. and the upper hand of greed. That is the time. And there will be um, an absolute annihilation of morals, ethics, and values. Is the time when somebody will come. Because if one was to write down the points I've just made and look at it. That is destruction of the world in real terms. If one was to look at, if, if nobody lives, nobody would like to live in a world where there's an absence of ethics, morals, values. Yeah. Nobody would like to live in a world where greed is the absolute. Nobody would like to live in a world where everything is inju- unjust, there's, there's injustice. And, and yet we're living in one. Yet we're li- <laughs> And yes, yes, we are. And the beginning of this happened nearly 100 years ago where, you know, things started to move. And again, the, the, the one point I find interesting is all these different faiths believe in a messenger that will come from within them. 
And they all talk. And the interesting thing, they all talk of fighting. They all talk yeah. of war. Yeah. They all talk of how one is going to... Bloody wars. Is going to, exactly. One is going to kill the other yeah. and w- how one faith is going to be superior to another and the messenger will kind of... Their supposed messenger will come in and uh, and finalize the truthfulness of that particular school of thought. You know, uh, nearly 100 years ago, as you said, yeah. uh, a book was written by... Um, Before you get to that book, yeah. I, I, I'm going to come to that and then you can take over. Okay. My question to our listener out there is, let's be rational about this. Hmm. Does it make sense that six billion people in this world who believe in faiths and we all know that all faiths are based on peace, love and humanity, mm. yet their messenger, whoever they might be, will come and kill Yeah. to prove a point. Yeah. I, I would ask the question to you, is that rational that a messenger would do? Or do you think, think out of the box, that a messenger will come and say, you know what? I'm going to unify you all under one umbrella with love, with peace, with humanity. By winning your hearts. By winning your hearts. Right. So, yeah, that reminds me of this book, which was written over 100 years ago by uh, a man uh, almost alone in a small village in India at that time. Even village would be uh, would be big. <laughs> uh, absolutely. With no electricity. Exactly. Uh, uh, no communication. No um uh, no modern means of communication. Um, his name is Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. Uh, he, we believe, we Ahmadis believe, is the promised Messiah. And he wrote this this lovely book again, uh, which is called Jesus in India. And in that book, he writes, and I quote, I have written this book so that by adducing proofs from established facts, conclusive historical evidence of proven value, and ancient documents of other nations, I might dispel the serious misconceptions which are current among Christians and most Muslim sects regarding the earlier and later life of Jesus. The dangerous consequences of these misconceptions have not only hijacked and destroyed the concept of Tawheed, divine unity, but their insidious and poisonous influence has long been noticed in the moral condition of Muslims in this country, meaning India, at the time. It is these baseless myths and tales that result in spiritual maladies like immorality, malice, callousness, and cruelty, which are almost endemic among most Islamic sects. Virtues like human sympathy, compassion, affability, love of justice, meekness, modesty, and humility are disappearing by the day, as if they will soon bid a hasty farewell to them. This callousness and moral degradation makes many a Muslim appear only marginally different from wild beasts. A Jain or a Buddhist is afraid of killing even a mosquito or a flea and detest such an act. But alas, there are many among Muslims who would kill an innocent person with impunity and commit wanton murder without the least fear of God Almighty, who rates human life higher than other all other animals. Why then this callousness, cruelty and lack of sympathy? 
It is because from their, from their very childhood, myths and false stories regarding a false concept of jihad are drummed into their ears and instilled into their hearts. As a result, they gradually become morally dead and cease to realize the heinousness of such abominable deeds. On the other hand, a man who murders an, an unsuspecting person and brings ruin to his family thinks that he has done a meritorious and rightful deed and made the most of an opportunity to win social acclaim. This is because no sermons or lectures are delivered in our country to deliver such evils, and if at all there are any such sermons, they have an aura of hypocrisy about them, and the man in the street continues to think approvingly of such deeds." Unquote. Now, when, when I talk of, and when, when Brother Daniel talks of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, it's, it's, it goes back to something Brother Raza started the show with when he talked of scriptures, and he talked of claims which people sometimes take in a literal manner, and whereas the true meaning and the true essence of the meaning is metaphorical. Would you say that correct, Brother Raza? Yes. So when I talk of rationality and I talk of a person coming and saying, well, they're going to unify different faiths, and then that word person that we're talking about is Brother Daniel referred to, to him as the Mirza Ulama, the promised Messiah on whom be peace. He, he said... I am Krishna, I am Buddha. And he, he referred to himself as all the other prophets as well. Mm, mm. Clearly, he didn't say he was them. No. But he was talking about the attributes. Yeah. And that's, look. And, and that's key to what we're talking it is, about. It is key because it, it, it always has been key. Every time a prophet has come to the world, this is where people got him wrong. Yeah. Right, so we see, look, when we're talking specifically about, you know, the Messiah or the Messiahs who, mm -hmm. who are not going to return. The reason yes. being is that if you look at the lifetime of Prophet Jesus, peace and blessings of uh, peace be upon him, that was the same mistakes that people at that time, the Jews at that time, had committed. Yeah. To understand uh, religious scripture in the Holy Quran, you find um, a, a verse that says that there are certain verses of this book that are very clear and very decisive in meaning. But then there are some others that you have to interpret, that you have to look a little bit more deeper into and you cannot take them word for word. When it talks about, I don't know, um, about paradise, right? Mm. When it talks about uh, rivers of, uh, of of milk and, and honey, honey and this and that, you don't So it's not really the translation. It. It's very important to look at the commentary. Yes. Because the commentary <clears throat> is always pages long, mm. not two lines. Exactly. And so when when it comes to this concept of, of every prophet telling about the coming of the next prophet or of them returning. I mean, Prophet Jesus has done this again. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that, you know, sa sa saying that, oh, I cannot tell you certain things because you don't have the power to deal with them right now. Mm -hmm. But when I will return, you will be told about it. Now, look, when it comes to the concepts of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, it's, it's very clear. You talk about rationality, you talk about logic. God Almighty says in the Quran that, in the Holy Quran, that I have created a certain system. 
And that system is what? The, the laws of nature. Hmm. The system says that if you have fire, fire has certain qualities and attributes that you will feel, you will see, you will feel fire burns. It's hot. Um, air, you cannot see air, but you breathe it. Magnetism and whatnot. So all these things within the, the, the world that we see, they abide by the laws of physics, abide by the laws of, of chemistry and whatnot. But then at the same time, God says that I do not go against my sunnah, against my practice. If I have decreed something, if I've said that this is how it's going to be, then this is how it's going to be. Well, it has to be that way. It has it? to be that way. Because right? if it doesn't, and if it changes, that means he's not God. That, that's the point. And look, again, we as humans, we're very quick. It's, it's in our nature. I mean, this is how we are. We're very quick to judge, hmm. to point and to criticize, yeah. right? So, now imagine there's one person that we know of has come back from the dead. Why just him? Yeah. Why him? What What's so special about him that God chose him? Whatever the, 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 the case, right? I mean, whoever it was, why him? We're going to ask that question, no doubt about that. We will ask God. Because it was a miracle. Yes, yeah, see, because, I, don't, because, I don't believe that. No, 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 no. See, this, you see, this, yeah, you, you, you're right. You're right. And this is the problem with faith. This yeah. is the problem with religion. I can speak on behalf of Muslims. Mm -hmm. I can speak on behalf of Islam that I have heard this, yes, this answer, answer. Yeah. so many times and I am just about to be frustrated with this answer. Because look, as, as from, from a professional point of view, as my job, I have to deal with, and I've, I've probably said this before as well, I have to deal with teenagers. Mm -hmm. I have to deal with people who grew up here, who have scientific knowledge based on observation, mm -hmm. who know their stuff. How much of faith are you going to indoctrinate yeah. or That's explain an word. You know, dogmas yeah. that you have and say, you know what, this is a miracle, deal with it. Mm. Yeah. And God says in the Holy Quran over and over again that observe. And that argument yourself. is irrational, isn't it? Of course it is. Deal with it. But you can't explain it. It's a it. miracle. You can't, you explain, can't explain it. It's a miracle. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle. But that's but irrational. Even, even for that, Islam has an answer. That Look, the, the miraculous birth of Jesus. Yeah. I will believe in that. Yeah. But it wasn't something which was out of that, you know, the, the, the law that the I've equation just mentioned. That, yeah. The law that I've mentioned, God has created this and this and this can happen if this and this and this is the case. It wasn't out of that. Hmm. We believe in, this, in, in the virgin birth, but there is a scientific explanation to that. Yes. And same with the crucifixion, same with the so-called ascension of Jesus, peace be upon Now, I, I'm so happy you mentioned science because... It's, it's important because most, if not all, faiths reject science and science rejects most faiths, if not all. Would you say that? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Whereas the Islam, the true Islam of Ahmadiyya Muslim community is total opposite. Yeah. It's science and religion and the belief in God is intertwined, is it not? Absolutely. So, Because we believe that the word of God and the work of God cannot be different. There cannot be mm. any contradiction between Which the is two. rational. Yeah. Again, I will use the word rational again and again yeah. because we're supposed to be rational. People are supposed to be rational. Now, the book you were just quoting from, The Promised Messiah, Hazim Azaghulam Ahmed, hasn't just written this book and talked about the journey of Jesus to India based on a whim. 
mm. or a dream. Mm. Oh, yeah. It is proven historically, archaeologically, biologically, scientifically mm. that that this, that this is a book um, which will put any PhD to to shame. Yeah, <laughs> because it's it's written with such logic, with such evidence. Mm. And that's the key from word. Evidence is so important. Of, from exactly yeah. from all sorts of different sources. And yeah. it's not just that. the The main reason why this will put every PhD to shame is because it has divine backing. Yes, yeah. and th- that's important. That's actually the what's the word? That's the key ingredient. <laughs> This yeah. this is what, that, what that, sets it apart from every, everything wh- else. Yeah, exactly. That's where all knowledge stems from. Yes. So, the question that we're asking this hour: Do messiahs come back? The no. Question. Yeah. Uh, in 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 the sense that, do 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 they come back alive? Will they come back? Do they come? Have yeah. they come back? Right. Yeah. You can put it in any tense, hmm. in any sentence. The answer will ultimately always be no. Because if it's not just about Messiah, we're talking about, and I think this is the first correction that we have to make. When we talk about prophets, when we talk about Messiahs, when we talk about anyone returning, you have to remember they are, at the end of the day, humans. Yes. Right? So the promised Messiah on whom be peace, the Muslim, has said this in, in one of his books as well, that, look, a prophet is, is one who comes to sow the seed. End of story. You have a limited time span in this world. You have a limited limited time. You come, you do your thing, and then ultimately you will have to pass on. However, the job, the mission, the assignment that is given to those prophets, that or the, or the legacy, that lives on. How that lives on, we know. You know, people continue and whatnot. Now, in this whole debate, there's there's two parties primarily that we are addressing that we're talking about that we're referring to first and foremost it is our muslim brothers and sisters and secondly it's our christian friends right or brothers and sisters now as far as our christian friends are concerned i mean that's that's a different kind of debate that's a different story but as far as muslims are concerned i i have yet to to understand and i've failed to understand actually i haven't failed to understand I have I have not yet come across anyone who has managed to explain this to me without the miracle aspect, without yeah. the oh, it's the will of Allah. It's that that's what God wants. That's what God's will is. Um, a, a logical, a rational explanation of what we believe about the second coming of Jesus. And, and to me, it's the notion that the Messiah will come and destroy. To me, that. It's so much it more than that. It doesn't make sense. It's so much more than that. Look, when when we started off the show, we said that look, in this day and age, what problem don't we face? Well, that's my point. Why would we wait for a Messiah who's going to come and destroy us or destroy a certain percentage of the world to 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 give precedence to one faith? Because the humans are doing a good job of it themselves, so why do we need the Messiah yeah, to come and destroy? That's what it is. I mean, from from the environment to 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 your own biological discussions of, of of the human race or human species, everything and 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 anything in between, we are having to deal with. Yeah, 
And now comes a a prophet of God, a messenger of God, a chosen one of God, who supposedly is the most gracious, the merciful, a compassionate God, which every religion believes. And here he comes to to wipe out half of humanity. Just for the benefit of the listener, I, I am sure you know someone who's a Muslim, and who, and, and if you don't, um, you're more than welcome to give us a call. We would welcome you with open arms, eyes, and hearts. And our place is 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 open for you to come and meet us. Um, one thing you probably haven't heard a lot of Muslims say is that we do believe within the Ahmadi Muslim community that uh, we we refer to Confucius as Prophet Confucius. We refer to Krishna as Prophet Krishna. Mm-hmm. We refer to uh, Buddha as Prophet Buddha because that th- we believe again it's rational to think mm-hmm. if one was to look at the teachings of all of these prophets. Um, it would be irrational to say that they're not prophets. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 talking about the two major religions of the world, which is yeah. Christianity and Islam, and yeah. and, and uh, the the bulk of the population of the world follows these two major religions. This this book that I was quoting from um, Jesus in India. So in this book, uh, you were earlier talking about you know the, the proofs and 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 yes, how the evidence um, exactly what evidence uh, does the does uh, the promised Messiah give in this book? So let me quote please uh, from this book again. So Hazrat Mizakulamimat, the promised Messiah writes, "Hence I shall try to prove in this book that Jesus did not die on the cross, hmm. nor did he go up to the heavens." nor should it be supposed that he would ever again come down to the earth. On the contrary, the fact of the matter is that he died at the age of 120 years at Srinagar, Kashmir, where his tomb is still to be found in Khan Yar quarter. To prove this point, I have divided this inquiry into 10 chapters and an epilogue, which are as follows, and, and then he talks about the evidence that he has given in this book. So the first piece of evidence is testimonies from the Gospels. Then testimonies from the Holy Quran and Ahadith. Number three, testimonies from medical literature. Number four, testimonies from historical records. Number five, testimonies from oral traditions which have been handed down from generation to generation. Number six, testimonies from miscellaneous circumstantial evidence. Number seven, testimonies from logical argument. And number eight, testimonies from the fresh revelation I have received from God. These constitute eight chapters. In chapter nine, there will be a brief comparison between Christianity and Islam, setting out arguments in favor of the latter. So this is how, in detail, he explains and and the lens he goes to to find evidence from all sorts of of sources, including the Gospels, including the Quran, Mm. including the Ahadith, to, to clear and to correct this incorrect belief in in Muslims and Christians and in other people as well, that Jesus is alive and up in the heavens. Uh, just for the benefit of the listener, Ahadith is uh, the teachings of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings. The narrations. Of the narrations yeah. of the Holy Prophet. And look, and this, whole, this whole point, again, what we're trying to say is what the Promised Messiah here, um, when he says that this is not what happened with Jesus, it's not to offend, is not to upset. No. In, in in the case of the Holy Quran, again, when when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, came and when he was revealed these verses by God Almighty, the point was not to upset previous religions. However, it was only re- the religion of Islam, it is only the religion of Islam that claims that the original text, the scripture of the Holy Quran will never ever change. 
that promise has been made by God Almighty. So prophets do come and look. There are which has always, been proven as well by science. There will always be people who will be upset. There will always be people who will disagree with what you're saying because it's it's a new belief. And and again, you're right. It's actually a default emotion. When yeah. something new comes yeah. which challenges your exactly. narrative, and the narrative it's a default of emotion is... Of your forefathers exactly. as well. And that's what we find in the Holy Quran, that whenever prophets come and they challenge your narrative, your, the narrative and the belief system and everything that you stand for, not just of you and your generation, but the generations before you. Yes. People will say, oh, you are calling us and our forefathers, you're calling them liars? We're not calling you liars, but the record has to be set straight. And, and I think, you know, the challenge of today's world and the challenge to all the faiths in the world is, my question would be, let's say the person you're waiting for, you have found. Mm. With all of the attributes and the character that your scripture says that mm. this person has, mm. but he comes from another faith. Yeah. What would you do? And this is where the question lies, isn't it? This mm. is where the promised Messiah, this is one of the reasons why the promised Messiah referred to himself as accepting all of these messengers as prophets, that they were prophets, and then he says that the characteristics that in, found in them and the attributes found in them are in him. Hmm. He didn't say he is them. And yeah, and one one reason why but you're listening to a Muslim station. Yes. Preaching to every faith out there. Exactly. And you might think, hold on, what, why are, what is wrong with you people? Why are you doing this? <laughs> I'll tell you why we're doing this. Because... Buddha came for his own people. That's right. Krishna came for his own people. Prophet Jesus came for a specific group of people. Every prophet that was sent ever to any nation in the history of mankind, and we believe there have been 120,000 prophets that were sent by God Almighty. Yes, 120,000. They came to address a specific problem to a specific nation. At, at a specific time. geographical location and time. And time. But there's only ever been one hmm. universal prophet. And that is the Holy Prophet of Islam. Yep. Now, as Muslims, we are inviting every single person from every part of the world, from every faith and every religion that there is, to come and join. Why? Because it's a unifica unification of all the faiths. The example that I've heard and, and I usually give as well is that if you are offered one rose compared to a bouquet of roses which one would you choose islam is a bouquet of roses so it's a it's a compilation it's a it's a gathering of all the beautiful teachings of previous faiths it's not copy paste but even if it's copy paste well the source is the same it doesn't really matter um and that's the reason why we can invite and we invite uh, people of every faith and every religion to the message of Islam. Now, if that is the original faith, if that is what the faith stands for, what do you think that the person to come, which we say is going to unite mankind, which faith would he belong to? And you know, to to add to what Brother Raza just said, one of the biggest challenges in society today that people question is, well, you cannot be religious if you're a believer in science. Well, we've actually, yeah. we, we've clarified that myth as well. 
because as brother said brother raza said it's intertwined we cannot have uh, you know everything that is um every time we find a discovery every time we um uh, establish new laws within science isn't it strange that uh, there's something of uh, that discovery or that finding within the holy quran somewhere which was written 1400 years ago hmm. now it would it i'm not saying believe it i am saying it it clearly it must raise a grain of of curiosity in one's mind and and there's one point again personal point that to me makes sense and which nobody has ever been able to answer every time i speak to other muslim brothers uh, from different schools of thoughts uh, christians jews or all, all the other uh, faiths in the world that adam and eve were the first people on earth and brother raza said earlier that most people when they can't answer this question they say it was a miracle and most time most of the time i ask this question to people they say let's not go there it's an argument which will it's a discussion which will turn into an argument um because within the amdi muslim community and as science says adam and eve were not the first people mm. on earth because if we were to believe that that means the first man on earth and the first woman on earth were what 7 6000 years ago 5000 mm-hmm. years 5 mm-hmm. 6000 so, years ago whereas we know for a fact science has said um man has been here for millions and millions of years we know that for a fact you've seen carbon dated <laughs> uh, was it you know humans yeah. basically yeah, in remains in, in, in yeah remains yeah. i've seen it myself in italy i mean it, how can you how say can you not how can you not believe that that is the truth when it's proven it's factual so and again i'll go back to rationality rationality would say why would god send a prophet on earth where there's no people because hmm. <laughs> because prophet adam hmm. was the first prophet because man had evolved to a point where they had started to understand the concept of god almighty yeah that's evolution not monkey turning into man hmm. it's the evolution of the mind it's progression yes now again i'll i'll urge you i'll i'll appeal to you that l- listen to this with an open mind and a cool head and i'll ask the question again if whatever faith you belong to if you find a person who has the attributes and the character of the person that you are waiting for yet he comes to an come come and yet he belongs to another faith is it not your responsibility to just go and find out who they are isn't that uh, from a muslim point of view uh, brother raza yeah. what did the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him say that uh, go and, and w- when you see the if somebody claims to be the messiah go and what uh, to, it's your responsibility when the messiah when you reach the age of the messiah go and convey my salam to him salam to him but isn't there some kind of uh, saying that if somebody does claim to be the messiah it's your responsibility to go and find out what they're talking about or something like that i've heard this before that if somebody does claim and you're waiting it would again make sense for you to go find out what's he talking about 
Does it make sense to you? Yeah, but for Muslims, look, apart from this, again, mm-hmm. I, I do apologize. It doesn't ring a bell for me. But I'm sure you've come across that. But looking at the at the prophecies of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah, you put him looking at the, the verses of the Holy Quran, looking at different, uh, you know, the context of what those verses have. It's It's high time for a Muslim to think and ponder about isn't isn't this what was foretold? And mm-hmm. isn't this the time that the promised Messiah, the reformer of the age, the prophet of the age, is supposed to appear? When the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, gave a detailed description of how the latter days will look like and when God Almighty will send a reformer. When he will say when he said that the mosques will be most beautiful, but they will be empty of guidance. Mm. They will be filled with, you know, fitna. They will be filled with, with you know, mischief. Mischief, yeah. Mischief. It will, it will start from them. It will return to them. When it talks about, um, the, you know, the Holy Quran, you will have the text and the scripture and the book of the Holy, the physical copy, but people would not be really following the, the, the essence of what the word the actually is. The true teaching. The true teaching of that. Isn't this the time that you have earthquakes, that you have not just like literal earthquakes, but earthquakes refer to other things as well in, in religious terminology. So all of these things we have now, we have in front of us, but we're clearly oblivious to the fact that we need to do our research. We're not even contemplating about mm, maybe, may, well, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I will have to reconsider my stance. I will give you their stance just to briefly. And I think our Muslim brothers and friends and sisters, if they want to call in, by all means, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is something that I have heard from someone, from an imam, from a Sunni imam, myself, which has similarities with with the Christian belief. Now, the orthodox Muslim belief is that Jesus, peace and blessing, peace, peace be upon him, Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, whom we consider to be a very noble prophet of God, no doubt about that. At the time of crucifixion, he was actually not put on the cross. Yeah, he was replaced. So God Almighty took someone else and gave that person the the look, the face, the physical appearance. outward appearance of Jesus the people at that time who were after Jesus and wanted to put him on the cross thought he was Jesus they put Jesus on the cross and Jesus died there and the real Jesus the real prophet Jesus peace be upon him uh, peace, uh, peace, uh, peace be upon him he was raised physically bodily to God Almighty wherever that might be he's between the heavens and where whatnot. so anyways I mean he yeah. went up somewhere and the Christian belief is that Jesus was put on the cross. He died on the cross. He was taken off the cross. He came back to life and then he was raised, raised. to the heavens. So uh, basically the result is the same. But my question to the Muslim brothers is, again, I'm, you're an imam. I'm Joe Bloggs. My question, again, rationality would be, I'm a Muslim. Why am I waiting for Jesus? Why am I there, not waiting for go. the Holy so, Prophet? Maybe the uh, blessings of that's, exactly, that's exactly why I said this. Why I wanted to, to re kind of um, um, confirm this is what I've I mean, heard. Wh- right? why, would, why would I so, wait for yeah, a person yeah. who came 600 years before the Holy so Prophet? For, for the Muslims, I will say look, 
But when we when said the that is, what, is is the holy prophet himself. That's what, that's the point. There we go. So for for a Muslim, you know that this is the we we said just just right now the only religion that is left, the only faith that that person who is to reform and to unite mankind can come from hmm. is what is Islam. Islam. That's that's according to. You know the 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 explanation that I gave before. Yeah. Because no other religion, well, no other faith claims to be universal. universal right. Yeah. No other faith reaches out to other people to convert them. Yes. Apart from Islam, right? Yep. Now, in the Holy Quran, God Almighty states very clearly about Prophet Jesus that he, again, what we said, came for a specific time, came to a specific people, came to address a specific problem. Yep. Now you are waiting for someone. That's like me saying, um, "I live in the UK. We do have a prime minister, but I will take. Inst- I'm waiting for the president of the United States to come here and make a new law. Mm-hmm. I will refer that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right. Rasulan ila bani Israel, meaning a prophet sent unto the children of Israel. Yeah, the Israel. Very clearly. So. Again, apart from the fact that it's a person going to descend physically, bodily, we don't know where he's been for the past 2,000 years, if that's even something that, that the human body can survive, can undergo, we don't know. Right? Well, well, we do know. Also, well, the, do know. you know, isn't, wouldn't the question arise that if there was anybody worth saving, it was the Holy Prophet yes. Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon there him. we go he is the perfect person he was the perfect person if anybody was ever sub- w- w- to be brought back it was him he was the one who brought this universal religion that Muslims believe in Jesus didn't and correct me so if why I'm save wrong. Jesus why save the second best well, well this is the point isn't at the sermon at the mount or before uh, the prophet uh, peace be upon him holy prophet peace be upon him passed away did and again I'm paraphrasing and I, I can't remember what exactly he talked about the laws of other faiths before him and mm-hmm. all the prophets that the laws um, that prophets before him had brought, that they were um, they were not rejected or were they rejected? Every, every prophet was rejected. No, no. Huh. The laws that these prophets brought. Yes. Were they? Oh, yes. Th- so the Holy th- Quran states, meaning today we have perfected your faith for you. So, so no Islam need. accepted the laws of yes. the prophets before. Yes, yes, of course. Which is proof within itself that it's a universal religion. Yes. But again, to rectify the problems and the mistakes that had come into those yes. religions of and course. scriptures. New innovations and customs and traditions had taken over. There was a need for the Holy Quran. And then again, it wasn't just another scripture. No. Which was fallible, which was subject to interpolation and whatnot. No. When the last law came, which we believe is the last law, you know, there's, there's no more divine law or scripture that is going to come after the Holy Quran. God Almighty did not say only this is the last law, but he said this is the last perfect law. There's nothing you can do about it. Nobody will ever be able to change it. Nobody will ever be able to take something out, put something in or manipulate it in, in any way whatsoever. It was perfect. Was it you who told me, Brother Daniel? You, you, the UN did a study. They paid some millions of pounds to some... I, I can't remember. I th- I'm, I, I'm sure it was you. No, it wasn't you. Against funds to, to do what? To look at the authenticity, to prove of the Holy Quran. 
and it was an it was a a, 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 theolo- a theologian hmm. who wasn't a Muslim, hmm. and he was um, he converted at the end. Let me guess. No, no. no? Well, I don't know, <laughs> but he they they, um, they gave him the project uh, to 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 study it and to go do research on it um, and to to see whether it is authentic or not. Right, you and body and and I, I that some, sounds a little bit, but probably somebody else. Mm, there was a, there was a, a related idea. body. <laughs> sure. um, right. Um, to to or something like that, Sounds but more plausible. Yeah. But this person, and he was um, he wasn't a, a religious person, mm-hmm. and he spent I think four or five years traveling around that, yeah. researching, and he came back and said that there is nothing in this book mm. um, that I cannot agree with. It's authentic, as people Muslims say it is. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Many, many such studies have actually been uh, been conducted by uh, by many societies, many universities. Uh, the Birmingham Quran actually goes it goes to back to the, the sixth, seventh century. Correct, absolutely. So, in the words of the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community himself, the reason why I mean he he has spoken about this and written about this in his books over and over again, why he has been sent, what his mission is. One reason that he was sent, he says in a quote, I have been sent to strengthen the faith and to prove the existence of God Almighty to the people, for their faith has become weak, and they take life after death no more seriously than a fable. The conduct of every person proclaims that he has not the faith and trust in God and in the hereafter as he has in the world and its ranks and its resources. Tongues profess a lot, but the hearts are suffused with the love of the world. It is the same condition in which the Messiah, um, so referring to Jesus, had found the Jews. As a characteristic of the weakness of their faith, the moral condition of the Jews had deteriorated greatly, and love of God had become cold in their hearts. The same is true in my time. I have been sent so that truth and faith may be revived and righteousness may inspire the hearts. This is the purpose of my advent. I have been told that heaven will once more come near the earth after it had moved far away. These are the reforms that I have to bring about, and these are the tasks for which I have been sent. Again, one thing to the Muslim brothers and sisters that we want to make sure that you understand in all of this, the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, and we've said this over and over again, we cannot stress it enough because that's probably the greatest misconception and allegation that is raised against the community and probably the biggest wrong information that you have been told or read Fake or whatever news. or you know whatever it is your source the 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 founder of the MDM community did not claim to be an independent prophet to be a prophet better than god forbid the holy prophet to be a prophet um uh, who has brought a new law to be a the Messiah of the age, or to he be was a, a subordinate, exactly, of the Holy Prophet, or to brought even, so. or or to even change anything within the Holy Quran. We've made this very categorically clear. Not a single line, a dot, or anything from the Holy Quran can ever be changed. Will ever be changed. There, there's no doubt about that. But but you know the the fourth caliph of the Amri Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul. He he, in his Q and A's, he clarified this and he, he actually said some that this is political mischief the true difference between our brothers who are not uh, our Sunni and Shia and other brothers from other sects is actually in the belief of the Jesus hmm. peace be upon him 
of the Messiah coming or not. Because this is—it's got nothing to do with whether the, we believe in the seal of the prophet. That, that's yeah, that's yeah, the that's, that's the beginning point. If yeah. you—that's what I'm saying. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, as a he has said this very clearly, that if Jesus dies a natural death, yes, then everything is finished. Yeah. I mean, everything falls into place. That's right. You have just another prophet who lived a certain age, as you've you know read before. He lived to the age of 120 yeah. he completed his mission and died yep. just like every other human being as well yep and there's nothing and that does it actually a, for both muslims and for christians everyone right. right in fact if, all if, faiths if if we believe that jesus if we can prove that jesus has died hmm. then that's you know that that solves all issues between muslims and uh, and christians and and you've You've directed your comments um, towards uh, our Muslims, rather, Muslim brothers. Let me read out um, an excerpt again from Jesus in India, a book written by uh, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, uh, who we believe is the promised Messiah of this age. And he addresses this uh, to Christians. And he writes in the book, I am alone. I alone am the light of this age of darkness. He who follows me will be saved from falling into the pits prepared by the devil for those who walk in the dark. I have been sent by God to lead the world in humility and peace to the true God and to reestablish the reign of moral values in Islam. God has provided me with heavenly signs and for the satisfaction of seekers after truth and has shown miracles in my support. He has disclosed, disclosed to me secrets of the unseen and of the future, which, according to the scriptures, are the real criteria for judging and identifying the true claimant to this divine office. He has vouchsafed to me true knowledge and comprehension of verities. That is why souls which hate truth and love darkness have turned against me. But it is my desire to be kind and forgiving towards mankind as far as it lay in my power. Hence, in this age, the greatest sympathy one can show to the Christians is to draw their attention to the true God who transcends the traumas of birth, death, pain and suffering. He created all primordial matter and particles in spherical, spherical shapes and thus signed this inherent message in nature that like every sphere, his own being is one. He is not subject to any dimensions. None of the expansive bodies have been created triangular. All the things God created in the beginning, the earth, the heavens, the sun and the moon, the stars, the elements are all spherical in nature. This denotes unity and oneness of the creator. Hence, there can be no truer sympathy and love for the Christians than that their attention should be invited towards God whose handiwork absolves him of the taint of Trinity. Unquote. You know, we are we, it, the hours kind of disappeared, and we are coming <laughs> up to 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 six o'clock. And quickly, if you are so confident, one one thing I can speak from an Ahmadiyya point of view, and brothers are sitting here, the beauty of religion is that you should have so much confidence in what you believe because you live it, that no other faith can come hmm. and change your mind without facts evidence mm. and and, uh, and and a true picture right 
which with which the 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 holy founder of of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Muhammad, uh, on whom be peace, has done in in this book, Jesus um, uh, in India. I would urge you that surely your faith is so strong within you that it still leaves you with an open mind to explore other options, not because. Uh, uh, not because you might be wrong, but because maybe there's another path. Hmm. Jesus in India is a book you can find on alislam.org. For our, our Muslim brothers, read the philosophy of the teachings of Islam. If that book doesn't convince you otherwise, hmm. I don't know what will. For our brothers of other faiths, look at reviews of religion. Review of religion is a mag- it's the oldest, I think, one of the oldest magazines. Which which does exactly what it says on the cover hmm. reviews religions, hmm. and uh, uh, and uh, you know alislam.org is a website. Or uh, if you want to look at modern contemporary websites, look at Rational Religion. It will blow your mind. But I would re- request and recommend that if you have a mosque nearby, an Ahmadiyya mosque, and you want to find out more about our beliefs and you want to find out more about the concept of the Messiah that we have do go and um, get in contact. I would like to end today's program with a quote of His um, Holiness, the current, the, the, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, has a Mizzaghulam, Ahmadun Humbi, peace. He says, The task for which God has appointed me is that I should remove the malaise that afflicts the relationship between God and His creatures and restore the relationship of love and sincerity between them. Through the proclamation of faith and by putting an end to religious conflicts, I should bring about peace and manifest the divine verities that have become hidden from the eyes of the world. I am called upon to demonstrate spirituality which lies buried under egotistic, egoistic darkness. It is for me to demonstrate by practice and not by words alone the divine powers which penetrate into human being and are manifested through prayer or attention. Above all, it is my task to re-establish in people's hearts the eternal plant of the pure and shining unity of God, which is free from every impurity of polytheism. With that, we thank you for listening in and we'll be back on Monday, inshallah, from all of us here. Assalamu alaikum.